0: Renewed attacks on Judge Angoran's law clerk are featured prominently in a brand new motion for mistrial filed today by Trump in the New York civil fraud case. Is it a violation of the gag order against attacking the law clerk? Or does it just skate by? Is there any merit to the motion for mistrial and what are the chances the trial judge and later the appellate court will rule for Trump as the case continues into its seventh week? And why did Trump pick Don Jr. to be his lead off roadmap witness? And why did the judge declare that most of his testimony was irrelevant? The mystery of who leaked to the media, the Georgia Fulton County DA proffer videos of all those lawyers that got convicted and why it was done has been solved by a hearing today with presiding judge Scott McAfee on the district attorney's emergency motion for protective order. Why did someone confess during the video hearing? And what did Judge McAfee let slip about his inner thoughts about having to be the trial judge in the case? And earlier in the week, the district attorney revealed in a TV interview that she does not see her case against Trump going to trial any earlier than early spring, with no chance that it concludes before the presidential election. What does that mean for the timing of Jack Smith's D.C. election interference case? the Mar-a-Lago obstruction and espionage case, or even the Stormy Daniels Hush Money cover-up business record fraud case in New York. Speaking of the D.C. election interference case, we are full steam ahead with Judge Chutkin presiding as she gets ready to pick a jury on time for a March 2024 trial, while the D.C. Court of Appeals considers the special counsel's opposition to Trump's appeal to permanently block the gag order from applying to him to allow more violent rhetoric to continue. All of this and so much more that will pop into our head at the appropriate time when we see the record light on this midweek edition of Legal AF with your co-anchors, Michael Popock and Karen Friedman-Ignifolo. Karen, DC, Florida, New York, Georgia. How many of these criminal cases get tried in your view before the November election, one. That's what I, I think. say.
1: One, possibly two, but really one. We'll be lucky to get one.
0: Yeah. And what's your? I totally agree with you. What is your? People think we planned this one. She had no idea that was coming. Uh, what is your second, if there was a second?
1: It would be Alvin Bragg's Stormy Daniel election interference case.
0: You and I. You know, they say people as they get to know each other and they grow old together, they start to look alike and sound alike. That's so right. I so totally agree with you. All right. Well, that's a good way. That's a good opener for our first segment. Let me just adjust my head, as our producer likes to say, line them up a little bit better Um, of our first segment. Let's talk about New York. Uh, We were going to start the podcast talking about Don Jr., but then... As often threatened, uh, the Trump side finally got around to filing a motion for mistrial. There was some clamor in the courtroom about a day or so ago, and some wild speculation that they were talking settlement up at the front bench, as the judge Angoran likes to call his his caucuses with the lawyers. And I made it clear from practicing here that I did not think that was a settlement discussion. If that was going to be a settlement discussion, that would take place in the court's chambers away from prying eyes as well as ears. Uh, but now we, we speculate that the, what was going on up at the front bench was a discussion about the motion for mistrial being filed and Alina Haba making some sort of representation that there was it would be very delicate. They were going to very delicately raise the issues because the judge was concerned that they were going to violate the gag order by some of the things that they suggested they were going to raise. I did a hot take on this particular filing, but now it's time for Karen to weigh in. Karen, you've had an opportunity to read the 30 pages or so with supporting affidavits. Got it right here in my hot little hand of the motion for mistrial and who who features prominently in it. Well, for me, it's two things. The concept I've never heard of and became a drinking game for me on my hot take of co-judge that the principal law clerk is the co-judge. They fell in love with that term. They used it over and over again in the brief. It really has no real meaning to me. We'll talk about it. And of course, front and center is a frontal assault on the law clerk by name, by political donations, by photo. Uh, In order to argue that there's some sort of nefarious thing going on, because, oh, my God, the principal law clerk in New York sits next to the judge and helps them do their job, which is to maintain continuity and track seven. No, it'll be 14 weeks of trial testimony and evidence and thousands of pages what, as if they expect the trial judge to just keep it all in his head before he renders his opinion as the trier of fact. I um, my, my, my one last comment before I turn it over to you. The people on the Trump side who filed their affidavits trying to argue like they were some sort of experts about New York procedure don't know what the heck they're talking about. They've never tried a multiple week trial in front of a judge in the New York Supreme Court because if they had, and I have, you would know that he needs help in keeping track of all the evidence and all the record, the testimony, the transcript. And and that's the role of the principal law clerk. Karen, what did you make, give your spin and your hot take here about the filing? And then what do you think the odds are that either Angoron and or the appellate court is going to find a mistrial because of the issues raised in the motion?
1: Yeah, so let's just remind people what a, what a motion for mistrial is, because there are different motions that, that the defense will make. One is a motion for a directed verdict at the end of the government's case, uh, which is made after all of that evidence is put on. Um, and then they, they say, look, there is no evidence against me. Can you dismiss it? But another motion that you can make at any time if you are a defense attorney, is a mistrial motion, and what and you're, what you're basically saying is something went amiss. That's really not a play on words. I just made that up, but it really is saying something is isn't going right. Something is prejudicial, uh, and that the trial something happened during the trial that makes it so that it cannot go on. Something just re- really inappropriate now i can't get a fair trial you can also get a mistrial if if some for some reason someone gets sick or a jury can't reach a verdict there are many reasons for a mistrial but it means the trial has to end for whatever ha- for whatever reason it can't go on and you either it is either dismissed with prejudice or without prejudice and so here they finally did the mistrial motion that they said they were going to do and they basically are saying this case should, there should be a mistrial, okay? So this this particular trial shouldn't continue and uh, and it should be with prejudice and it's because the judge and the clerk are biased against Trump. And that's the kind of long shot legal, um, legal maneuver that they're hanging their, their hat on. Um, and, you know, look, they're basically asking the judge to say that the judge is biased and that his clerk is biased. So of course that's never gonna happen in a million years. Whether or not they have made a sufficient record for an appellate court, uh, I highly doubt they will see that as well. I think the judge has bent over backwards to uh, be lenient in terms of in giving a lot of leeway to the defense who has now started presenting their case. And I think the judge will have shown there, there were lots of objections that the government made that the judge overruled in favor of Trump and the Trumps, et cetera, the defense. And I think there will be sufficient record that um, that the judge and the clerk were not biased against them. But, you know, interestingly, what what really stuck out here um, in my mind was the fact that this mistrial motion that they made really seemed to have ad hominem attacks, again, on the clerk and gratuitous naming, including with photos of the clerk, which, you know, my first reaction was, this is clearly a violation of the gag order. You know, that the gag order that, that, don't forget that Trump has already been Already been found to have violated twice, and one of the times he was actually found not credible. If you remember, he, he went outside and he made a speech about, about the person sitting next to the judge, you know, and, um, that was clearly a violation of the gag order. And, and the defense attorney came in and said, no, no, they weren't re- referring to the law clerk. They were referring to the witness. I think it was Michael Cohen at the time. And the judge said, uh, no, 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 put, I want to put Donald Trump on the stand under oath. And he did, he testified under oath. He said he meant Michael Cohen, not the law clerk, and the judge found him not credible and fined him like fifteen thousand dollars, I think, total in these fines. Um, but it doesn't matter. They they are they don't seem to think that the gag order uh, applies to them. And they went on and on about how the evidence of bias is is tangible and overwhelming, and it has tainted the proceedings. Um, and, you know, look, they, they went back into a, a high school alumni lo- newsletter and they looked into um, the law clerks' uh, political donations, which interestingly, I thought when I first saw that, you know, law clerks aren't supposed to give uh, political donations, but apparently um, she had, there's an exception because she's trying to uh, get, she's trying to run for judge. And so, you know, apparently she's allowed to do that now. In New York, if she's running to be on the ticket for a judge, it's almost all Democratic. So it wouldn't be surprised if, because New York's very Democratic, I wouldn't be surprised if um, if that were the case if but you know I don't know that that's I don't see how anything they wrote in there would be a a basis for a mistrial and I don't think that the I don't think that the appellate courts who all have clerks by the way that help them I don't think they're going to take lightly to this what about you what do you think
0: Yeah, I don't think the appellate court is going to take kindly, as you said, to Judge Angoron or our entire I'm going to I'm going to defend now. You and I are New York bar members. The entire New York State Supreme trial court system is under attack by outsiders who don't know a darn thing about how things work here. Chris Keisel works in Florida. Alina Haba is a New Jersey lawyer that works out of a Regency uh, co-sharing space in Manhattan. It's not her primary office. Um, And so she's not a New York lawyer. She doesn't like head down to 60 Center Street on a regular basis and apply her trade. And Cliff Robert, the other lawyer that I think they lean on for New York practice, practices out of Long Island. Nothing wrong with Long Island. It's just not Manhattan. And the fact that they don't understand the role of the principal law clerk in a long bench trial where the judge is the trier of fact to manage the documents, to even forget manage the documents, as I said in my hot take, to go further. To say to the judge, in terms of a human being, not artificial intelligence, but real intelligence, to say to the judge, that thing that Don Jr. just said this week doesn't comport with what he said two weeks ago when the New York Attorney General had him on the stand. And here are the two transcripts that show the mismatch. judge. That's not advocacy. That's not co-judging. That's being a proper law clerk, just like when my law clerks working for me, and I'm in a courtroom because it takes a village to put on a trial, let alone decide a trial, hands me the right document at the right time for the right witness. It's not, oh, oh, the Michael Popox law clerk is co-lawyering. No, they're doing their job to assist the professional. These are power professional positions. And the law clerk has a defined role that's completely different than in most places. And a lot of, as I said on a hot take, federal court, they have law clerks who generally just came out of law school or recently had a practice they're not usually members of the bar and they work for a couple of years for that particular judge they write a lot of the orders it would be the equivalent of you and me in federal court saying we object to the law clerk for the federal judge writing the first draft of the order the judge should be doing that oh my god and making everything that's ordinary and mundane sound nefarious, which is what they're doing here in their attacking brief. And I, I agree with you. I think that the ridiculous criticism of how Engoron is running his courtroom, consistent with New York practice, the principal law clerk is different than in most states here in New York. Every principal law clerk is a lawyer this principal law clerk was a senior trial lawyer for the uh, Corporation Council of the City of New York, meaning she was the municipal lawyer doing civil litigation. She's very skilled. She didn't get the judgeship this time. She'll probably, based on Donald Trump, will probably give her enough um, brand uh, pump that she'll get the election next time but they're not I haven't observed a darn thing that's that's inconsistent with my experience in these courtrooms and and they're but everything to them is oh oh she sits next to the judge every staff sits next to the judge could be the bailiff could be the deputy could be the clerk could be the law the principal law clerk they all sit there it doesn't make them a co-judge that's what that's he's not like he's not sharing his chair. There's another desk up there that was built for a reason. And so when the, when the first department gets this, it's going to be a whole lot of, well, I'll use an example from my own career. I once had a judge who, who, with my opponent, who loved this one piece of evidence in this case and fell in love with it and kept bringing it up at every hearing. And finally, at summary judgment, they lowered the lights and they put on this presentation, this PowerPoint presentation, it's featuring this Key piece of evidence, sort of like the attack on the law clerk. And then they were all breathless about it. Oh, my God, judges, is the worst thing. And the lights came up and the judge, like Judge Ngoron, looked at my opponents and said, tell me that's not your entire case. Tell me you have more than that. Because And you could just hear the deflation. It was like somebody popped a balloon. In art And they ended up losing the trial. This was a pre-trial, like, like now, like a pre-hearing, uh, pre-hearing issue. The first department is going to hate the attacks on the law clerk and on the judge, and it's going to deny this, and nothing is going to stop the completion of this trial sometime before Christmas, and then the person they're attacking, the two people they're attacking, who are not going to get replaced, are going to write the decision, likely, as you and I talked about last week, to nail Trump. For at least five out of six of the remaining fraud counts, and then take away his buildings, his real estate, his houses, and his money. And so, I don't think this is a great place to be if you're the if you're the if you're the defendant to be attacking the judge and then hoping you get a reversal from the first department or ultimately the court of appeals, the highest court in New York, uh, based on something this judge did wrong. If you're banking on that, you're going to lose your company.
1: I have a question, oh, <clears throat> Popok. Sorry, a little frog in my throat. Um, I have a question. You said I have. You said you started this with. I have to defend our New York court practice. So, unlike me, who's really spent their career in New York, you have you practiced in Florida and other places. Are you saying that that the practice of law clerks really aren't? I just assumed that's everywhere because that's so entrenched and ingrained in New York practice. I just assumed that's what all courts and judges no. do. Is that not?
0: Yeah.
1: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll give Why? you something. I learned something every episode. I,
0: I'll give me too from you. I, I I um I'll give you an example of Florida, because I practiced a lot in Florida, I practiced there for 20 years and practiced here for 30 years. And so Chris Kais and I are sort of, you know, have a similar background in that. In Florida, in the trial level, there is no principal law clerk. There is a there's no clerk. There's no, most judges don't take on a clerk from a law school. They have what's called a judicial assistant or a JA. They are a paralegal or administrative person that is like a, it's like an air traffic controller, controls all the scheduling and the briefs. Now you got to make sure you're on the right side of the JA, or you're not going to get that emergency hearing that you need, or you got to get that brief in to the judge. And it's a little bit later, it's missing something. And they, and they, they're the gatekeeper for the judge. But But other than
1: a different title, what is the difference? In other words, it
0: sounds like- They're not writing, well, they're not, well, they're only doing the administrative things that I just outlined. The JA in Florida is not writing first drafts of opinions, is not sitting with the judge and handing notes in generally and saying, that guy there, he said something different three weeks ago. You know, The judge is sort of on their own and they don't rely on the JA for that. In federal court- a little bit closer, you know, as you know, in federal court, the law clerk, which is not a lawyer, is usually a law student who just graduated and has this plum position that, you know, that they want, this federal clerkship. Um, They do, they, they take notes during all of the hearings or trials. The judge will often ask them, like Judge Ngoron is doing at a break or even during the trial, that last comment that that person, is that consistent with what the appraiser said two days ago? Wasn't there a document? Oh yes, judge, hold on. There was an exhibit. That's the clerk and the clerk will often write the first draft of the of the uh, decisions by the judge and so and I know a lot of law clerks and they will tell you very little of what I wrote got changed by the judge. He'll say I want the ruling to be in favor of the plaintiff on this issue. Go write the go write the decision and they write the decision and then the judge. Like, okay, his major or her major addition to it is adding the signature. So that's the federal law clerk system. New York is sort of a hybrid. The principal law clerk is not a co-judge, but handles almost like a federal magistrate, handles a lot of the discovery and pre, you rarely see your judge until way late in the case on some major issue. Until then, your quote unquote judge is your principal law clerk who meets with you, who sits and tries to decide on discovery disputes, about deposition scheduling, very little gets through to the judge except major, major issues. But if you don't treat that person like they are a judge and a lot of them become judges, that is a stepping stone in New York to becoming a judge, principal law clerk. I'm in front of a judge right now in the commercial division. Her last job was principal law clerk. So they have a unique role that's sort of federal magistrate, sort of federal law clerk, a little bit administrative but not co-judge. And so all they're pointing out is their ignorance, the Trump side, about what the role of that position is in a civil practice, or even criminal, in New York State Supreme Court. Did I get that? Did I answer that? You did.
1: No, it's fascinating, actually.
0: I find it fascinating and having practiced in multiple jurisdictions around. But it is unique. I mean, people who don't know Principal Law Clerk New York just don't get it. And they don't want to get it. They want to point out the obvious. You know, it's like the old... um, in Casablanca, you know, when the uh when the uh when they were astonished that there was gambling going on in the casino. Oh, there's gambling going on, you know. Same thing here. If any New York lawyer worth his salt standing next to these two, he would say, You can't make these arguments. All you're doing is commenting on normal garden variety New York, New York practice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah well,
1: so, so much other things have been going on in this case too this week.
0: Yeah. Talk about Don Jr. What you think about Six hours of hearing about how Grandpappy Trump built brothels in uh, in Canada in the uh, in the Yukon. Uh, who cares he, but you know, I'll start it this way. Don jr. For me, disqualified himself as a, as a precipitate witness with knowledge about anything relevant to the case, which is a defined time period and the use of fraudulent or cooked statements of financial conditions by his father. Cause he kept saying, I don't know what, I mean. oh, well, that's why I hire other people. I don't, I wasn't involved with that. I didn't know it. I don't know how much that's worth. I didn't, wasn't involved with the appraisal. So what's he doing being the number one witness, uh, which is usually your best witness, your roadmap witness, why him and how effective was that, Karen?
1: Well, I think they wanted to try to charm the judge and get out all the things that that Trump Sr. wanted to get out but was unable to, because uh, it was largely irrelevant to the case, most of what, what Don Jr. did and said on the stand. And, but the judge allowed it. He, the judge said, you know what, I'm letting them try their case. I'm going to let them put in as much as they want to put in. And I think they're going to be hard pressed to say that he was biased against the Trumps or against the defense, given how much leeway he gave them and how much irrelevant stuff that they gave him. I'll start by saying he is creepy (laughs) AF. Okay. I, I read about what the way he's he thinks he's charming, but in the grossest way. Okay. In like, he apparently he said to the he said to the sketch artists who are like the nicest. I I I know most of the New York sketch artists. They're the nicest women. They work really hard. And he walks up to them and he's like, hey, you know, make me look sexy. I'm like, ew. Like, why do women have to deal with that? Why do women have to like hear men talk like that to them, as if that's somehow Charming, and another time he used the sexy word again. Another time, I can't remember in what context because I was so grossed out by by him. He's just so like just creepy, you know. But anyway, apparently he was quite charming, and you know the the judge thought he was he was a, a showman, if you will. But let him do what he wanted to do, and he was like a commercial for for his family. He was, you know, my father's an artist. My father can can take a swamp and see the vision my father invented the luxury apartment building and invented combining hotels with with apartments in the same building and putting gyms in there i mean maybe his father did i don't know but you know he's a visionary and and he invented everything and and the judge let him do it i mean i thought it was a little you know it was it was telling that there that one of the things they put into evidence was was their marketing materials that had lies in it you know it had that that 40 wall street was i think 73 stories high when it's only like 60 something like 61 or 62 stories high something like that like they just they lie so much they can't keep track of them they don't even know what are lies anymore because just everything they do is so is so just off the top of their head however however they want to do anything and you know it it it's just interesting how how it's clear that that the way he just reveres his father and i just again i don't know how that really helps the case very much other than it was much more of the finger pointing towards others you know why well, had nothing to do with it if there were if there are mistakes it's the experts that that relied on it but you know look the meat and potatoes part of of the trial is also starting to happen right i mean they put on a uh what the, an expert witness today um you know the um his name is whitkoff or something like that he's like this big huge new york real estate guy who who met trump in the in the 80s and i guess trump didn't have any money so he bought him a sandwich i don't know they've he's he's every building in new york especially lower manhattan uh where where i'm very familiar with that area he, he apparently is the guy who who built everything right he's like the rival trump in new york but unlike trump I've never even heard of him. I don't know his name. I can't even he's remember his name. You'll, you'll, I'm sure add it because he's. By you know, the way, he's
0: not that big. He also was a lawyer that represented Trump back in the day.
1: All right. Well, what's his name?
0: <laughs> Whitcoff.
1: Whitcoff. Oh, but I just right. yeah, got it. Okay, yeah, he's got it. But
0: he's not that big. He thinks he's that. He's not that big.
1: Didn't he? Doesn't he like own the Woolworth building or something? I mean, yeah, that's I mean, pretty he's big. He's like a
0: little, a little mini Trump, but.
1: Yeah. But unlike Trump, his name isn't everywhere. Everything, you know, you can't watch it like back in the day, you, every building had the name Trump on it. Every park had Trump. on. Like Trump, like cleaned up the friggin' the freeway and had said, you know, this part of the freeway is, you know, cleaned up by Donald Trump. Like, he I remember wants that. Name.
0: Henry Hudson. <laughs> yeah, he, exactly. The highway. He wants
1: his name everywhere. And Whitcoff is, seems to be quite different than that. But, you know, he started going into... You know, the, the nuances of evaluating assets and how it is more of an art and not a science and how, you know, and and Judge Angoron apparently he was quite charming. He has a thick New York accent. He comes across as very credible. And, you know, and it, it appears that Judge Angoron was really listening to him and, and thought, you know, I want to hear what this guy has to say because he does seem to have a lot of information that could be useful on how it's done in practice. Uh, but you know, interestingly, and and you know, we'll see we'll see what happens um, when we get to read the transcripts of the cross when it happens when it happens later. It'll be interesting to see how he's crossed because I am sure if I were the attorney general, I would say things like, okay, yeah, you know, maybe some people can some people take this into consideration while other people take this into consideration. But but what about putting factual details that are outright wrong when you're making the determination. Like, you can't get around that. That's that's the part of this that really drives me crazy. Like, at one point, that he, he was being questioned, and what he basically said was, if you have a statement of financial condition, and it has two properties on it, and in one, you make a lot of money and in one you lose a lot of money, they wash each other out. And so then therefore it doesn't matter if it's one's wrong and one's right, they wash each other out. And Judge Gorham was like, Do you have any evidence of that? Can you show me any proof of that? And you know, he was sort of trying to dig into that a little bit, which I thought was which I thought was sort of interesting. But the cross examination of him I think will be very, very telling because he I really think he's going to have to at the end of the day, even if you value you consider valuations done with this mix of information instead of that mix information. No matter what, it has to rely on accurate accurate information, right? Like square footage, you know, has to be accurate when you're doing the math, or you know, and, and or other other numbers that were objectively objectively wrong. So I, I I do think that they're starting to put witnesses on that are. Actually, substantive. Unlike Don Jr., who I don't think was that substantive. What about you? What did you think?
0: Well, I think you have to start with the um, you have to start from the place of where Judge Angoron is. The New York Attorney General jumped up and down and said, "Why are we even putting on experts? You judge have already determined pre trial that there was persistent fraud and the books were cooked already, um, and the only issue was intent." And none of these witnesses, whether it be an appraiser or a fellow developer who used to be the lawyer for Donald Trump or um, an accountant or an insurance person, is going to be able to get into the hearts and minds of the critical issue in the case, which is intent. So why are we bothering doing this? And the judge didn't say they were wrong. He just said, is this the hill you want to die on? Why don't I just let it in? (laughs) Give it the credibility or the weight that it deserves. And if it's, I'll keep them on a short chain in terms of relevancy. But do you really want to give them a reversible error issue um, to raise on appeal and do this trial all over again if you're wrong? And the New York Attorney General sat down. In other words, the judge signaled, let me handle this. I'm the gatekeeper, it's my trial. I don't have a jury to worry about, you know. Experts in front of judges is different than experts in front of juries. You don't want an expert in front of a jury on irrelevant issue because it'll just blow their mind and they'll be distracted from what they need to do, which is to apply the facts to the law as charged by the judge. But when you're a judge, you know you got your big boy and girl pants on, and you're like, "I'll handle it." So he said, so "Let let it all in. I'll keep them on. I'll keep them on track." on anything that I think is relevant. And the judge has already said to the New York attorney general on two occasions, um, do you really want to die on this hill? For instance, they raised the issue of Don Jr. Why is he testifying at all about things that are outside the time period and not relevant to the judge's fact finding, which is what he's doing now as a trier of fact, about properties and the years that are relevant to the, I almost said indictment, to the um, complaint or the petition in the case. And why is he talking about grandpappy Trump building brothels in Yukon in the 1900s? And the judge said, again, do you want to mistrial on this on this issue? Why don't we just let him talk and I'll deal with it. And then later when there was an objection that was raised I think yesterday by the by the Trump side by Keis, by Chris Kais, who stood up and said, Why do they get to bring in some issue about Forty Wall Street, one of the buildings at issue? And the judge turned to Chris Keiss and with his withering style said, I just listened to an entire morning of irrelevant information from your client Don Jr. Really? You're going to argue relevancy in front of me, which is a quick flash of what's going on in the judge's mind. I don't think any of this charm offensive, trying to reposition the case, trying to get the judge on there is going to work. This This cement is hardening quickly from 25 witnesses for the government. For the for the uh, state the, the state attorney general, all of the documentary evidence and the judge's thirty page decision on summary judgment, it would take not just a hail mary, it would take some bombshell evidence that doesn't exist and a witness's testimony that will never be created in order to turn the tide on this case.
1: What if it, they could? Cut, what if one of the yeah. bankers though that gave them these big loans off the bit misinformation came in and said, "We never relied on that." it wasn't material it had nothing to do with our decision we wanted to go into business with trump don't you think it could impact counts 2 through 6 it won't impact count 1 or the damages but don't you think that could impact count 2, two but didn't through six? we do
0: this already we the new york attorney general we did, didn't didn't this happen already the new york attorney general called in deutsche bank's banker and said to them how did you make the loan they said well there were two requirements one of them was everybody's excited in the city today there are two requirements. One was that Trump keep a two point five billion dollar net worth, and the other one is he have he have a certain amount of liquid assets and, and all of that. And that went back and forth with the texting with Ivanka. Um, and yes, they said, we'd like to do business with Donald Trump, but the underwriters, which are the ones in the back of the bank that makes the decisions about loans, not the bank. Look, the bankers are salespeople. You and I have dealt with them in our own personal life and also you know, with cases. And the, 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 they can sell ice in winter. Okay. They're great. But then they got to deliver that loan package to an underwriter who's got, you know, who's got uh, compliance and control issues, and a committee that has to approve the loan. And you know, it's not—we're not talking about local schmokel banks. You just go in and go, "Oh, I'm Donald Trump. Can I have money now?" I mean, there's a whole process for this. I just don't think they're going to find that banker if they had that banker that was going to say that this it didn't matter what he told us. We didn't need financial statements. We didn't need personal net worth. We didn't need liquidity. His name was enough. That would have been witness number one. didn't Trump
1: promise these bankers?
0: Where are Why aren't they witness number one? Why is it Don Jr. talking about the Yukon and doing like he's he's got a like he's doing a bus tour in Hollywood pointing out buildings shiny buildings that his father did. I mean why is that witness number 1? You and I practice trial law. It's primacy and recency. You put your best witness on first. You put your second best witness on close to the end and you sandwich everybody in the middle. Best witness is Don Jr. The one, the syncophant I mean, what, what did how? What was the, the 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 selection process? Who's gonna kiss daddy's ass more? Well, Ivanka won't come back from Florida, so who's left? You knew it was gonna be Don Jr. There's no bigger ass kisser in that family than Don Jr. He fancies himself another Donald Trump, except he's. Well, he's not grosser because Donald Trump is pretty gross. I called him smarmy. You hit the nail on the head with your description. He's yuck, disgusting. You know, I got to take a shower every time I do a hot take about Don Jr. And I don't mean that in a good way. So, so. um, And where's
1: Tiffany in all this? You know, she went to law school. She went to Georgetown Law School, right? My alma mater. Where is she in all of this? Why isn't she out there defending her? I'm just saying.
0: Tiffany's first thing she's going to do as a lawyer is do a name change. She's going to. She's gonna be. Was it her mother, Marla Maples? She's gonna be yeah. Tiffany Maples at the rate we're going. Yeah. If you know, if that whole one, And then I loved in the cross examination of Don Jr. By the way, speaking of name change, where they they did what you and I do when we want to show strength, it, they almost did no questions, Your Honor, which indicates that they didn't. He didn't lay a glove on our case. They said very brief cross, Your Honor, mm-hmm. and all the cross was wasn't there at a golf course. Wasn't there one of your holes, the 18th hole? Didn't it fall, didn't into it fall off the into the ocean? <laughs> didn't it fall into the ocean? And he was like, yes, yes, it did. And isn't there a Hawaiian property that's spending millions of dollars to take the Trump name off the property? Yes. And I mean, it was like, I mean, they you know, they picked the five things that I made know. them laugh the most at their lunch mm-hmm. break, uh, which I love, which is another way to signal this guy didn't do a darn thing. To, to us. And I I, I want to watch Cross because you and I'll do it at next week or the end of the week. I want to see what they do with this appraiser who's the buddy, other than you used to represent Donald Trump as his lawyer, right? Right. Okay. And so you're here not, you don't have any knowledge factual as a fact witness about the intent of Donald Trump when he cooked the books, which has already been determined by the judge, right? You have no knowledge, no information. You can't comment on that, right? Right. And so you're just here to try to teach the judge about New York development and appraisal process, right? Right. That's, that's all you're here you're about the art of it, right? Right. And they're going to do the same thing with the insurance guy. You're just here to tell, teach the judge about how insurance is, is obtained, right? I mean, just sort of shrink them down. Boo! You know, the honey, I shrunk the expert, and that, that's and that's what you do.
1: You know, going back to the creepy comment, I just because I have to. It, we have become just our society. We're so conditioned, and but this was like 20 years ago men used to talk like that, right? It's this 2023, almost 2024. I don't know any men who still talk like that. Can you imagine a woman, like, can you imagine Salty? If I said to Salty, hey, Salty, make me look sexy. He'd be like, gross, get this creep out of here. You know, like women don't talk like this ever and men used to, but they don't do that anymore. Like who, where, what planet is he living in?
0: You know what I call the court reporter? At any room when I enter or anybody there, like that happens to be a woman. I've done it since the top of my career, even though it's going to sound a little old-timey. Madam Court Reporter. Not their name. not I don't know them, but they have a role in our justice system and they they deserve respect. So it's always Madam Court Reporter. Should we take a break now? Do you need a break? Because you're the one banging away on your equipment there. No, you don't go over and like try to date the, the, uh, the, the sketch artist or like you said, breathe on them in order to make them look, make me look handsome and sexy. I mean, like you said, so disgusting. I can't even get it out. But um, we, this isn't the last thing we'll talk about about Donald Trump and all of his smarmy kids uh, that are going on. Another four or five weeks of this, and we'll cover it here on the Midas Touch Net- Network and on Legal AF. We're going to turn next to talk about. Georgia, big developments in Georgia. Some new things, new breaking things that happens so even since we've been on the air. That we're going to talk about with Fawny Willis not taking any guff. That's a legal term from the uh, from the defense or any of the defendants. And then we'll we'll uh, we'll also talk about, of course, D.C. election interference case with Judge Chutkin as she moves that case towards trial in March, and the D.C. Court of Appeals considers the gag order whether it's going to be reinstated and if so, in what fashion. But first. This is one of my favorite times of the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsors. Lomi is the only appliance that prevents food waste from stinking up your kitchen and polluting the planet. Now that I've invested in a Lomi, it's changed the way I deal with my food waste. Lomi is the biggest innovation in the modern day kitchen since the dishwasher. Lomi has helped me turn my home into a climate solution. Now I can transform my organic waste into nutrient-rich loamy earth that I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden instead of sending it to the landfill. And as a result, I can help the environment and make my life easier. In just four hours, Lomi transforms almost anything you eat into nutrient-rich plant food at the push of a button. It's smart, simple food recycling that fits my space perfectly. Cut the chore of doing the trash in half and eliminate bugs and odors in your kitchen. And here's a bonus. You get to feed your lawn and garden with an all-natural fertilizer that you just created out of your own food scraps. All my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge can go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food at home. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to lomi.com/legalaf and use the promo code legalaf to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to l o m i.com/legalaf and use promo code legalaf at checkout. Thank you Lomi for sponsoring this video. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver-infused fabrics and makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver-infused fabrics inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than sheets used by some five star hotels. Miracle sheets are the perfect gift for your spouse, friends, or family who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets. And since these come with three free towels, you get two gifts in one just in time for the holidays. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Sleep clean with miracle. Go to TryMiracle.com slash to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save over 40%. And if you use our promo Legal AF at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to TryMiracle.com slash Legal and use the code Legal AF to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's TryMiracle.com slash Legal to treat yourself, a friend, or loved one this holiday season. Well, we're back <laughs> off of those ad reads. OK. Thank you to our sponsors. Couldn't do it. Literally could not do it without them. Let's talk about Georgia. Before we launch into what we thought was the latest news, I'll just do two little quick updates. Um, I did a hot take a while ago about um, Harrison Floyd, who is uh, who was the chair of Black Voices for Trump. He was the guy that couldn't get out of jail originally on bond because he couldn't find a lawyer. When he got indicted, and then we also learned that he was up on charges for assaulting a federal officer when he was being served with a subpoena to appear in front of a grand jury for Jack Smith's DC election interference case. You know that guy, and um, and then he's just he spent the last two months or three months using social media to bash Fonnie Willis, attack her appearance. Um, and then go after witnesses. And Fonnie Willis has had enough as the Fulton County DA, and she has filed a motion today to revoke his bond and send him back to jail where he can sit in the Rice Street Jail right next to the courthouse from now until his trial, maybe in 2024, maybe in 2025. Um, (laughs) We'll find out. But she's had enough. Her, Her hand is under her chin, and it's now time to teach these defendants who are out on bail and bond a lesson. In addition, speaking of Georgia, uh, we now have, based on new filings, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the mother and daughter team, who, uh, are, who have not only sued Rudy Giuliani for defamation, but have already won because Rudy Giuliani was found basically in default and a judgment entered against him by the judge in District of Columbia, <coughs> pardon me, Judge Beryl Howell, on defamation and punitive damages, and the only thing left for a trial is going to be how big of a check the jury is going to make Rudy Giuliani right. And we now have the numbers, and the numbers that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, these Fulton County election workers who were defamed, accused of uh, uh, voter fraud when they were doing nothing of the kind, they were just doing their civic duty, is somewhere between 15 and 43 million dollars. Which I know, what little I know about Rudy Giuliani's finances, he doesn't have all of that money, but they will take everything that he does have, including his apartment in New York and his and his condo near Mar-a-Lago in Florida and everything else. So <laughs> that was, that's the quick update. Let's go to um, the event today, Karen. You had a chance as I did, but well, you take the lead. On the hearing on the emergency motion for protective order filed by Fawnie Willis, because a whole bunch of proffer videos of Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and the bail bondsman, as I like to call them, were leaked. You know, these hour-long videos of the of the testimony they gave to the state attorney in order to support their case and to get their plea deal was leaked to to the media. At the time, we were like, who leaked these? I mean, they're goldmine for us. We got to talk about them. Who leaked them and why? And we learned today in the course of that hour-long hearing. Why don't you tell everybody, Karen, out there what happened at the hearing and and what uh, what was the confession that was made during it?
1: Sure. I would be happy to, but I want to go back to something you talked about just now, which is how Fonnie Willis asked the court to revoke the bond of um, Mr. Floyd. Um, Only because this one really, really just gets under my skin. Because when you read the reasons Fonnie Willis asked that his bond be revoked, so really what she's saying is, this is a defendant, who's out on bond or bail meaning he has paid a certain amount of money to go to be allowed to go out with certain restrictions and those restrictions are and there, there's always like different ones for different people you know and and whatever they are here The restrictions are basically you can't threaten witnesses, you can't attack them, and you can't do inappropriate things on social media. And then in her motion, she cites to the various social media postings that she said violate his conditions, right? Things about threatening witnesses where he says things like, it's over. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger needs to call his lawyer. He's about to go through some things. Or things like, you know, just going on and on, right? Different things. um, And at one point there's even, you know, we have to shout out to Midas Touch. There's even a a Midas Touch posting here where it says, you know, during her proffer session before Georgia prosecutors, Jenna Ellis. If you can see it, it's great, right? I love that Midas Touch is is making its way into uh, DA Fonnie Willis's motion uh, papers on page eight. But really what upsets me about this and what gets me gets under my skin about this is it shows the way Donald Trump is being treated differently than everybody else and every other defendant because what he does is just as bad, if not worse than what Mr. Floyd does. And, but somehow nobody puts him in, nobody incarcerates him. They just, not only that, we're fighting over gag orders because he can't be stopped. And so if he's going to be out there saying things like, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to come, if you coming after me, I'm coming after you, he's setting the tone. You can't put the lower level guy in, in jail or in prison waiting trial And Donald Trump continues to get away with it. There are two tiers of justice you know in this country but not in the direction Donald Trump talks about and so this really really bothers me that um that it just demonstrates how he is once again just getting away with things that nobody else would get away with because of course Mr. Floyd should be put in for doing this so would every other defendant who would ever do something like this that's exactly what a judge would do and should do but the fact that we're not doing doing it with donald trump just really it just shows to me how somehow he is being treated differently uh, than everybody else and that's just not right and if i were a judge I, i don't know that i would do one and not the other especially if the one that i'd be doing is a much lower level person in all of this right donald trump is the ringleader he's the boss and so they really I think, and I know everybody is afraid to put Donald Trump in, you know, put him in, but he's not stopping and somebody has to stop him because lives are in danger as a result of what he does. And, and Mr. Floyd is doing nothing more than uh, following the lead of his ringleader, um, Donald Trump. So yeah, he, I just wanted to, to comment yeah. on that.
0: The interesting thing is that Donald Trump doesn't bash the people that are necessarily the Georgia witnesses. He stays relatively quiet. He only bat because of McAfee. He only bashes the uh, in places where he knows he can get away with it until until he can't, which is the Democratic judges like Chutkin and Goran, you know Judge Mershon up in New York, or the one, <clears throat> you know the one that he thinks he's got in his back pocket, Judge Cannon. We'll talk about um, uh, at another time in down in Florida. He really hasn't, you know, uh, surprisingly, even though there is a gag order per se by Judge McAfee. About intimidating witnesses or, or making comments about witnesses, and remember, McAfee's already decided to make, I think, all the trials there anonymous, mainly because of Donald Trump. I mean, um, the jurors. The, I'm so, I'm sorry, all the jurors down there anonymous, mainly because of Donald Trump. Um, it, it's amazing how quiet Donald Trump is and does and does very little. Does no bashing of McAfee as a judge, and doesn't really go after the other the other potential witnesses. Like you, you know, if this was in New York and Powell and Jenna Ellis's leaked things came out, you would see crackpot Sidney Powell, crackpot Jenna Ellis uh, corrupt right-wing racist vermin. Uh, uh. He doesn't do that in Georgia, which is very interesting. One of the reasons I don't think he does it in Georgia is because um, he's there is a real fear that that is a place where he could get convicted at some point, and not be able to have a pardon from a Republican president. I'm not sure he can self-pardon. We'll leave that for another day. But let's um, let's keep going. Sorry, on. we'll
1: go back to the. the right, leaks let's, no, let's keep hearing. going
0: on Georgia and talk about um, you know do a quick summary of uh, the motion for protective order emergency, the hearing, particularly that already happened today, and what we learned from the hearing, um, and and how Judge McAfee runs the courtroom.
1: Yeah, so so Fani Willis turned over discovery, which is um, witness statements essentially that she has in all forms, and she turned it over to the remaining. 14 defense attorneys, like she's supposed to do. And, uh, there were some, what they were called unauthorized leaks from, uh, I think it was ABC first and then the Washington post. And now it's everywhere from at the time, an unknown source. And Fonnie Willis did an emergency application to, um, for a protective order. And she said, it must be one of the defense attorneys who leaked and these, um, she was very disappointed by this, and by by filing an emergency order, she got a hearing on a much on a fast pace, which happened the next day. So today, there was a broadcast hearing that um, we all could watch where the, the all the defense attorneys were present and um and it was via zoom and it was on whether or not there should be a protective order now there was an application for a protective order previously by fonnie willis on the discovery but uh judge mcafee did not rule on it so by releasing this information i don't think it was a violation of anything because there was no order in place um and so what fonnie willis was asking for was for a protective order because she, what she said was, there's no reason to be leaking this other than to intimidate witnesses, right? That that's that's what will happen, and not only that, there will be inappropriate information that is out there uh, in in the public realm, and the reason it's inappropriate, and, and basically what was leaked were were video recordings of the proffer sessions or of the or of the conversations between prosecutors and the defendants who have now pled guilty and are cooperating so what the prosecutors did in and and this is done in certain jurisdictions and in certain cases is they put them under oath made them swear to tell the truth and asked them questions and videotaped it so that there's a record for all time of what they have said and it normally those those video recordings those would be considered hearsay at trial because they are out of court statements being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. They are just pure hearsay. And so those typically wouldn't come in to evidence. So why would you record them? You would record them because if they change their testimony later, you can confront them with it because it's under oath. You can cross-examine them with it. And so and, and so it's a, it's a good re, You do it for a reason, right? You, you preserve their testimony for a reason, and it's a good thing that you did it. But Fannie Willis is upset that it was released because because there are, at, when when you go to trial, when you ask questions, there are lots of objections, right? And the judge may or may not allow certain information in. But if that information is already shown to the public and out there and the jury knows about it, juries, you run the risk of a jury considering extraneous evidence in the jury box, which they are not allowed to do. They're only allowed to consider the evidence that's before them. And so as a prosecutor, you want to do everything you can to prevent this all this information to come out so that you don't somehow poison your jury pool. You don't make it harder to pick juries. And, you know, you just, you don't want to, it's just not a good thing to have information out there that might not ever come in at trial. So so she did the right thing by asking for a protective order and for asking for one on an emergency basis. Her protective order that she asked for was a limited one. It wasn't just for all discovery. It was for things that are sensitive or have personal identifying information or confidential business records, the proffer videos, that kind of stuff. Um, most of the defense attorneys said, we don't think that and, and McAfee, who every time I see him, I'm more and more impressed with him. I think he's an excellent judge. Uh, I like the way he, you know, he he's, he's not at all intemperate. You know, he, 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 he's very much respectful, smart, knows the law. Gives people a chance to speak, um, but is completely in control. He's he's kind of exactly what you want a judge to be, frankly. Um, most of the judge, most of the defense attorneys, and he went one by one to ask them. Most of them said, you know, look, Judge, we don't think a protective order is necessary, but if one is, uh, then we consent to the one that Bonnie Willis has proposed and we'll abide by it because it is narrowly tailored, right? It isn't. She's not just saying everything. We think it's as reasonable, and you know, as a lawyer why fight about everything, right? When you can, you want to show you're reasonable too, to a judge, so that somehow they'll, they'll give you certain things too. So that, that sort of seemed like what was going on there. You know, every once in a while you'd, you'd have a defense attorney, um, say something like, you know, like, um, this isn't necessary because X, Y, and Z. And if it's wrong, what they're saying, the judge corrects them. You know, he's like, "Well, you're not. You know, it's not exactly true because that's already taken care of." Like he made sure that the record was absolutely correct, and I love that he did that. Um, and then we get to the defense attorney who, for Mister Miller, for Misty Hampton, and. You know, because I, I, we just thought, I thought this was just going to be a, okay, judge, okay, judge, no problem. You know, one by one, they were saying, we don't object, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. But this one was a little bit, I, want, I don't want to say dramatic, but he, it was like, you know, it was like he confessed, you know, <laughs> he said, um He basically said, you know, I I want to be transparent with the court so nobody else is blamed. You know, he said he said first of all this is not necessary and I won't consent. So that was your first hint that he was going to be a little bit different from the rest of the pack. But he said, but you know, I I um but I want to be transparent with the court so nobody else gets blamed for this. I did it. I released the videos to one outlet. (laughs) And, you know, he's like, I did it because the four people who did the proffers, who stood in front of you, judge, they pled guilty. And to hide these proffers to show all that went into the plea is misleading. uh, And it misleads the public about what goes on. And two people actually helped my client. And the public needs to know that. So, you know, please keep that into consideration. And Judge McAfee shot him down and said, this isn't a trial that the American people, this isn't a a trial that you do, you know, it's not a trial of public opinion, basically, you know, and he he, he said to him at one point, that's a good slogan, you know, um, that the public has a right to know, but we have is there any case law that says that pre-trial discovery should be part of the public record? And he's like, no, you know, that's not, that that doesn't exist. Um, anyway, it was just, it was the way he kind of, the way McAfee did it was basically like, look, this is supposed to be a trial in the court of law, not in a trial of court, court of opinion, nice slogan. Um, but he didn't yell at him or say anything. He just kind of said, you know, he he just sort of held his feet to the fire a little bit. But then we got to it was interesting. Um, I was a lawyer for media organizations who they did not want a protective order because, you know, look, they like. Uh, this they like these these leaks, frankly. And that that was an interesting legal back and forth about what the law is there and the eleventh circuit law about there's no public right to discovery and back and forth, back and forth. And you know, the press, you know, they really, really want it. And um and so I thought that was also a very interesting back and forth. And the judge said he's gonna rule I think tomorrow on this. I I think there's you know, at one point the judge basically signaled that he would do a the full protective order. But because he says there's so much information and why why argue, why come back and forth about is this one protected or this one not? You know, this just leaves it up to, not only to subjectivity, but to litigation. Why not just blanket all of it? So we'll see what he does. I think not only is g- he going to grant a protective order, I think there's actually a chance that he might uh, he might do the full protective order, not just the one Fannie Willis put in. But what do you think, Popok?
0: First of all, he's granting the protective order because the party's already submitted an agreed order. I think the interesting, the the things that triggered other things during the hearing is we started with David Schaefer's lawyers, who was the former head of the GOP for Georgia before he got indicted, getting together with the other defendants, including Donald Trump's, to submit and work through with the Attorney General, uh, with the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, um, a proposed agreed order. In retrospect, based on the comment that you just mentioned about the judge, the um, DA probably should have just swung for the fences and went for the whole, uh, as you said, protective order, which is what they originally wanted as they filed it, was all of the discovery information was gonna be covered by the protective order. They wouldn't have to pick and choose which pieces of it. And even certain highly sensitive pieces like video evidence they would have, people would have to not get a copy of it sent to them. They would have to come down and watch it uh, in the DA's office. The, when they saw the, uh, um, the proposed agreed protective order, which the judge doesn't have to adopt, but generally would, and he has in the past year, uh, they, they agreed to kind of split it down the middle and let the DA designate some categories of things, some subset of things as sensitive, and then let that issue go to the judge if people don't agree with the designation, and sensitive things would get a certain type of treatment away from the prying eyes of the public and the media. The judge said, you really want to go through all that? All the all your documents, uh, DA. I, it was almost like I'll give you the full one. And but then, you know, the DA, uh, to their credit, they were like, "No, we've agreed upon this, and if the court is okay with it, we have a procedure in place that we think will be fine." A small, very small handful of people said, "No, we think we should be able to disseminate all of the discovery information." This is Donald Trump's talking point here, to as wide an audience outside of the courtroom as possible. And the judges, you've noted, said. Why? The trial takes place inside of a courtroom. I get why you need the information to defend your case. I get why, but, but why before I've even ruled on the admissibility of any of this information, um, and before we're even at trial, why do you get to widely disseminate it and try your case in the public? And none of the lawyers, including the one from Misty Hampton, who's the Coffee County former election supervisor, Uh, who was involved with the break-in in in which they downloaded uh, confidential voter data and just handed it out to Sidney Powell and other people to use inappropriately in lawsuits. Um, wh- why? Do you, what's the case law you have for that? The judge, and of course, Misty Hampton's lawyer said we don't really have any judge. We just think it's a good idea because the DA has had the, you know, has had the lectern all this time, and we want to be able to get our message out there. Like, well, that, this is not a compelling argument for due process or the right to a fair trial. Um, so, and I think the reason that he felt compelled and had a moment of, uh, of where it became a confessional for him. Uh, for the lawyer for Misty Hampton is because just before him, the lawyer for uh, Floyd, who we just talked about at the top as being the subject now of having his bond revoked and being sent back to jail, was all took tremendous umbrage and was clutching his pearls, as we like to say, about the fact that the district attorney used a typo in one of their emails against them. Look, They didn't write it, They wrote it, the lawyers for Floyd. The lawyers for Floyd were trying to write, apparently, an email to the DA that said, we did not leak the videos. And instead they wrote, we leaked the videos. You can't make this up. Yes, they claimed it was a typo and they sent an email right after, or some point after and pointed it out. They don't like the fact the DA embarrassed them and and told the judge, see, they're the leakers. They they admitted it right here, you know, whatever. It was like, okay. so. He decided on the phone call with the judge, the Zoom boxes, we have pictures of it, you know, 16, 18 lawyers surrounded here to say, I was aggravated by, by the um, by the fact that the DA, you know, uh, wrote about this typo of ours, and I've been fielding phone calls from the media, and, and I and I want an apology and I want the DA to say that I wasn't the leaker, and to which the judge said. Well, when we signed up for this case, a certain amount of aggravation went along for the ride. In other words, I love that because it's the judge indicating I've been aggravated too, but I'm not complaining about it, Uh, you know, because he usually seems very unflappable, the judge in the courtroom. So right after that, after this whole big kerfuffle over who's the leaker, who's the leaker, then Misty Hampton's lawyer, just as the judge was about to turn the page and move on to the next lawyer to ask if they agreed or disagreed with the protective order, he said, I got to get something off my chest, your honor. I I was the one. and And if you would have bet me which lawyer representing which client would have been the leaker, Misty Hampton was not on my bingo card at all. That is the one I thought would lay low, try to cut a deal, get out of there with whatever dignity she has intact, cut a deal with Fonnie Willis, not be the leaker and piss off the, the very prosecutor that she should be cutting a deal with. Ben and I did a hot take on it, and I happened to go over to her GoFundMe page or whatever she's using. I mean we won't mention it but just go find her gofundme page and on that gofundme page where she says she needs to raise $300,000 to pay this lawyer she's raised $6,000 and all she does is do this fawning thing about how what a wonderful selfless person she is and she needs and she needs help if i were here's a note of advice people get upset sometimes that we give free advice i'm going to give free advice to misty hampton a Don't be the one that pisses off the prosecutor and you shouldn't be the one continuing to do uh, Donald Trump's bidding by leaking discovery information and trying to try your case in the public. Here's a better idea. Go cut a deal as fast as you can while there's still deals being handed out by the prosecutor and get the heck out of there, right? You're not going to try this case. You're going to lose. There's video evidence of her. I almost gagged, speaking of gagging, um, uh, Karen, I almost gagged when her lawyer said at the beginning of his little speech, oh, I I represent my client and she really wants transparency. She's very into transparency, really? Go watch the video of her deposition in another case in which she completely lies and it's obvious uh, until video came out showing that she let in um the cyber ninjas and the bail bondsmen and other people to go rummaging around the equipment the election equipment and tampering with it under her watch where she lied through her teeth on the deposition under oath until the video came out and it showed she did exactly the opposite of what she said so i don't want to hear about transparency my client is so interested in having the media you know have have access to this so listen that I agree with you. He's going to grant the protective order. We're not going to see these kind of leaks again, or we're going to be right back in front of this judge, who I think will be a little bit harsher with with his uh, with his rulemaking now that he sets the order in place. Makes sense. Totally. <laughs> Let's go to some place that we think makes sense, but Donald Trump hates, which is the DC court of uh, the DC uh, election interference case presided over by Judge Chutkin. got two things to talk about uh, as we wrap up our midweek edition. One is, and you did a nice hot take on this, and so I'll I'll let you lead there, on the – we got the briefing that's going on at the D.C. Court of Appeals or the the, – yeah, D.C. Court of Appeals uh, about the gag order. Chutkin, reminder, put in a gag order, reinstated it to stop violent rhetoric and attacks by Donald Trump on witnesses, prosecutors, families, staff, and the like she left herself out of it even though she's been violently attacked including by one of donald trump's followers who left an assassination message on her chamber voicemail but you know she's like i got my own federal marshals for protection i'm okay but that issue of as to whether that's a first amendment right for donald trump to violently and to attack jack smith including what he's been doing right up until the moment of their decision there's one more brief left. It's Donald Trump's. Then on the 20th of November, there's going to be oral argument. It's not going to be televised, but we will be able to get an audio recording of it, and we'll talk about it at that time. Talk about that, and the second thing we'll talk about before we wrap is the uh, the judge, you know, getting ready, including the motion to dismiss uh, dismisses that she has uh, on file, and getting ready for her jury trial in March. Go ahead, Karen.
1: Yeah, so Jack Smith's team filed an appellate brief. And, you know, they put, I I love when they put the question before the court so perfectly and so clearly and concisely, because then we all know what we're looking at and what the issue is. And he basically wrote Did Judge Chutkin permissibly issue an order under local criminal rule 57.7 sub C, uh, prohibiting parties and their counsel from making extrajudicial statements, meaning outside of court, targeting certain trial participants while expressly leaving the defendant free to make statements, quote, criticizing the government generally, including the current administration or the DOJ, statements asserting that the defendant is innocent of the charges against him, or that his prosecution is politically motivated, or statements criticizing the campaign platforms of of or policies of his current political rivals. And so what he's basically saying is what we're here for, Judge, is is, or the, to the court, is this very limited gag order that prohibits Donald Trump from speaking and targeting certain court and trial participants. Is that illegal? Especially when it still allows him to criticize lots and lots of people, including Mike Pence, who is going to be a witness in this case because he's a political rival. So so I think it, they, they, they characterize this very well because they set the issue out very clearly that this is narrow, okay, this this restraint on speech, this gag order is very narrowly tailored and they put it right up front. Um, so, so their brief is, I thought, really good. It reminds it reminds the court that you know, there's one defendant, four charges, and although he's not charged with an insurrection, uh, the indictment absolutely alleges that he's responsible for the events of January 6th and the lives that were lost, and you know that the trial is going to start March 1st, and we're picking a jury February 9th that is right around the corner. I mean, I, I can't believe how, how quickly that's going to come. We're about to hit Thanksgiving, the holidays, New Year's, and then boom, here. We are so. Um, they also lay out the, the the defendant's extrajudicial or outside of court statements, and they 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 did a really good job at summarizing exactly where we are. So he said that um, the judge has has reminded the parties. That we have to ensure the integrity of the case, but we also have to prevent a carnival atmosphere and prevent an uncheck- unchecked trial by media rather than a trial by impartial jury, right? That that's that's really important. And that the judge admonished uh, a general word of caution to Trump in the beginning, basically saying, you know, in order to ensure the orderly administration of justice, we're not going to allow you to intimidate witnesses and threaten or prejudice jurors. Entirely reasonable. Most judges don't need to remind defendants of that, but she felt she needed to. But before, both before and after the admonition, and, and Smith points this out... That the defendant, that Trump, persistently used the social media platforms that he's on uh, to make comments. And three days after the indictment is when he made the famous "If you go after me, I'm coming after you," and uh, also used disparaging and inflammatory language to target the court, the special counsel, trial witnesses. He and and Jack Smith doesn't name anyone, but he describes who they are when he when he puts in his motion uh, this information. So he called, uh, he puts in there that that Trump called Judge Chutkin a fraud and a hack, called Smith deranged thugs and lunatics, who's gone after his uh, wife and family, Uh, he's accused you know, made lies about Smith going to the White House when when he knows that was false. He called Pence delusional, not a good person, uh, who made up stories about Trump. And he called the former Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, who's a trial witness, uh, that he should be punished by death and that Meadows is a liar. So, you know, he, he sets up all of the various statements kind of like um, I, I wrote something actually on MidasTouch dot com uh, with all the threats, et cetera, and and Jack Smith, you know, it was the same kind of things that Jack Smith was doing, just in in order of who he's going after, what he's saying, and um, and also pointed out what has happened as a result of Trump's comments. So, for example, the day after Trump wrote, "I'm coming after," if you you know, the, "I'm coming after you," posting. That's when one of his followers called Chutkin's Chambers used, called her a stupid slave N-word and we're going to kill you, you know, and you're going to be personally targeted and all this kind of stuff. Called her the B-word. Um, and and Smith also, again, went on about all the other threats like Ruby Freeman, Shea Moss, and talked about how so many people have needed extra police com- Protection, security, and even and and even talked about things happening not in this case. He talked about Alvin Bragg and the baseball bat and the threats and the the stuff to him. Also talked about Fannie Willis and those threats, and uh, and also talked about how how Trump has said in in Caitlin Collins on CNN. Uh, town hall that his followers listen to him like no one else so I think Jack Smith just did a great job or I should say his team did a great job uh, spelling out all of these issues for the appellate court and making sure that it's in in the record and um, and you know, then really went into the law. And it was really interesting to um, to read about this because it's kind of a, a history of the First Amendment, and you know all of the different parameters of of the First Amendment, and how, you know, the court said that, well, while well, speech, critical of the state lies at the heart of the first amendment at some point a defendant's targeted disparagement of government officials can go from permissible criticism to encouraging harm against them and that this targeted disparagement poses a danger even when it does not explicitly call for violence and used popak your favorite quote that you you have mentioned many times um you know that that the King Henry the remark, "Will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest," uh, which resulted in the death of Thomas A. Beckett. So, um, so Smith, and he quoted that in his in his appeal in his appellate brief. Um, And basically, uh, you know, they pointed out that there's uncontroverted, uh, uncontradicted evidence showing that when the defendant has singled out a, a particular person in his public statements, it has led to them being threatened and harassed. And, you know, he should, he should be free to say things, but not no matter what, and not about whoever he wants. And... That and, and that this is no longer speculative the way Trump likes to say it is because every time he says something, something happens, right? People get threats. People get death threats. People need security. And that Judge Chutkin's narrowly tailored gag order allows him to still criticize Mike Pence, who's his political rival, but also protects the administration of justice and potential witnesses. Um, And, and so, you know, as you know, right now, the, the gag order is paused. Um, and, and that's because, you know, while they, while they get ready to argue this and to see what happened, but during this pause, right, since it has been paused, Trump called Smith. Jack Smith deranged and crooked and also included his wife and family in the attacks and i think that might have pushed uh might might actually push things over the edge he also warned again very recently in the middle of all of this appeal that Jack Smith and other DOJ f- officials if he's elected president will end up in a mental institution he also called these really excellent public servants who who i have so much respect for their um their you know lawyers who have worked in the justice department uh andrew weissman and lisa monaco monaco he's called them a team of losers and misfits and um and you know i, I have to say and then he said they're going to end up suffering a horrible disease and in a mental institution i don't know i i just think he's going after everybody and um And I think that potentially that, 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 that they're going to find that this gag order is actually narrowly tailored and appropriate. And, you know, one of the things that will be interesting that's that, that, I think will be what test does do, will the D.C. Circuit apply to this gag order? Because since it's the, a First Amendment case, right, it has to be narrowly tailored. Um, that's a that's a, a term of art when you're talking about the First Amendment. Um, and Jack Smith says that the test is uh, is whether these extrajudicial speech poses a substantial likelihood of material prejudice. That's to the trial, that's typically what the standard would be when restricting speech in this kind of setting. Trump, however, is saying that no, this is this should be a, a higher test to meet, right? Which is um, one that when you want to restrict the press, not just regular people, and that's the clear and present danger test, um, which is a which is a little higher standard. Smith says, you know what. We got it either way. So either way, we meet both standards. Whether it's substantial likelihood of of material prejudice or clear and present danger, either way, we've got it. We made it, and so therefore, this should this should stand. And um, and so I thought it was really, really excellently done. What did you think?
0: Oh, I did. I think they're going to lose. I think they're going to get gagged again. I think that there are. As Judge Chutkin has laid out, there are bright lines that f- there are, there is just certain <clears throat> there are just certain amount of extrajudicial outside the courtroom rhetoric that is not protected by the First Amendment. As the First Amendment comes into conflict with the Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial, Donald Trump doesn't realize it, but what the, what the courts are really trying to do, <clears throat> pardon me, is protect Donald Trump from himself. He's polluting the jury pool. He is polluting the uh, the um, justice system in a way that will ultimately, could ultimately backfire on him by having jurors that are afraid of him. And and that doesn't mean they're going to hang, um, no pun intended, that, that they're not going to rule uh, on one of the counts. It just means that they may actually rule against him because they're so afraid of him um, and, and that he comes off as such a um, tyrant. and and unhinged that he's actually undermining his own right to a fair trial every day in every way. And and that is what Judge Chutkin has made clear from day one as the trial judge. Her primary concern is the protection of the process, the judicial system, and, and to make sure there's a fair trial that results from it. And I don't think anything that she has ruled with her narrow gag order about violent rhetoric based on the evidence that was presented to her and that she observed is going to be overturned or that decision is going to be overturned by the DC Court of Appeals. Certainly not the three judges that have been chosen. I think it's a very, I'll put it this way, it's a very favorable panel of three judges on the DC uh, Court of Appeals to hear this issue. And I would be, uh, to continue a phrase from tonight, shocked, shocked if the gag order wasn't put back in place. I don't care what test you use. Ultimately, as you said it during the Georgia election interference segment, um, why does he get away with what a normal, uh, a normal defendant would never be able to get away with? Or to paraphrase Judge Chutkin in that same hearing where she made the comment about the assassination of the Archbishop of Canterbury, What name for me, Mr. Um, Lauro, the lawyer for Donald Trump, tell me a case in which a defendant such as yours would be able to attack the prosecutor and make all these comments and not be remanded back into the custody of the federal marshals and be back in the jail. Give me that case. I'm not aware of it. And to which he said, well, you know, candidate leading candidate could win the presidency. And the judge has already cut the legs out from another argument from day one. Doesn't care a whit what the day job for this defendant is. He is, as she likes to remind everybody, every time she issues an order, he is a four time, at least in her courtroom, indicted felony indicted participant on the wrong end of the V in the criminal justice system, which continues his freedom and liberty at the very moment is at her discretion. And 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 it's always you know, whenever she does her docket entry, she always reminds everybody he's out on a personal recognizance bond that could be revoked at any moment if if this uh, if he continues to act out in a way that undermines the justice system, and we know he's going to do that, and that's his plan because he's been trying to undermine every branch of our government, every system of our democracy. That's how he got indicted. He was undermining the electoral process and the peaceful transfer of power in a way that our founding fathers could never have envisioned that a former then losing president would ever try to cling to power by throwing over the game board of our democracy to try to stay in power. You know, people might say, well, why can he run again? Is it be, be, why can he run if he's convicted? Why can he run if he's in jail? because our founding fathers as 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 much foresight as they had, as many things on that hot summer that they built into the the Bill of Rights and to the uh, and to the uh, Constitution, they couldn't envision this. And so we're gonna have to reshape our democracy, reinstall the guardrails to protect um, against the next Trump or Trump the restoration, God forbid of Trump. But
1: what I does just, the Supreme Court do though?
0: I mean the Supreme Court has not generally ruled in favor of Donald Trump on many things. Jan 6th. I mean there's always two holdouts. I mean I could write it now. I could write the dissents right now. It's Alito and Thomas. Everybody else because Roberts is able to hopefully get them there, uh, including Kavanaugh, including even Amy uh uh, uh, uh Amy uh, Brown, uh, no, Amy. Uh, Amy
1: Coney Barrett. Amy,
0: uh, there's so many. Amy Berman Jackson is another judge. Amy right, Amy Coney Barrett. They're like, hmm, I don't think that's appropriate for a president, next to, to president to do. So he's never really won there on things that matter. So I'm hoping if that history is prologue they will continue to think this is an out of control lunatic except for alito and thomas that think it's totally appropriate everything he does doesn't matter what he he could set the white house on fire and i think alito and thomas would find some way to say that was appropriate political first amendment speech <laughs> so i've exhausted my partner we've reached the <laughs> we've reached the end of another edition of legal af midweek between that and all the hot takes that Karen, Ben, and me, the three leaders of Legal AF, do hourly, really hourly, to keep you up to speed if you want to support what we do. If this is your favorite content or one of your favorite content on the Midas Touch Network, here's what you can do to help. We have sponsors. You heard about them today. And you can you can visit those sponsors' websites and take advantage of the products at, at, at on special deals that they have. That's one. Two. The rest I'm going to talk about is all free. Free subscribe to the Midas Touch YouTube channel. It's a grassroots media network without outside investors. Free subscribe help them get to 2 million. They're at one point almost 8 million right now because the larger they get, the more your voice is heard. Then go over, you're watching us on YouTube, obviously, but we drop it on audio platforms wherever you get your audio podcasts from, right? Google, Spotify, Apple, and the like. Go get it there. Listen to us and follow us. Subscribe free to that. Go back and forth between the two. We love that. That is that is all the ways in a free way that you can support us. Send clips like this. And we do these new Legal AF After Dark clips and segments of this. We do it for a reason. A, not everybody has the stamina to, to watch an hour and a half of our podcast. So we've made little little podcasts, little potlets that you can watch on your own leisure time and send to friends and family for you've been telling them about Legal AF instead of sending the whole, send them a clip, see if that gets them to join our, our movement. And then if you really want to fly our flag, <laughs> we have Midas Touch merch, Legal AF merch on the MidasTouch.com store store.mitistouch.com I've been doing this for three and a half years. I never get that URL right, but there it is. Look at those shirts. Karen weighed in. Let's get out of unisex world. Get some nice cut shirts that people Pink. like. Get pink. Get rid of that logo that I love. <laughs> get, no. get people choices. And now you know what's happened? We used to sell like two shirts a month. Now it's like we, we can't keep them in stock. Jordy's like pulling his hair out and he has nice hair uh, uh, to try to keep these keep these shirts in stock. And We love seeing if you're wearing anything of the old coffee mugs or the shirts, the new shirts, the old shirts, post them on social media. Tag us in it. We love it. I'll send you back one with me and karen will do the same thing we love when people walk around with it. i can't tell you karen probably happens to you all the time i can't tell you how many times during a regular week i get somebody that's a follower or listener to come up to me and give me a, and give me some sort of fist bump or high five happened again today i was getting my beard trimmed and the barber shout out to ryan <laughs> at, the, at the at the barber shop told me i, I gave him one of our i have a card And his wife and his in-laws are now huge legal A efforts as a result. And that's all we got to do. We like what we do here. We think our content is good. Just introduce it to other people and help the network. Karen, you love when I give you the final word. I'm going to give you the final word. I'm going to shut off my microphone. What is it?
1: I'm in I'm in Palm Desert, California visiting my dad and my stepmom, who are both huge, huge legal AFers. So I want to shout out to them who I love very much.
0: Yeah, that's that's terrific. We love family here on Legal AF. So until the next legal AF, until one of our next hot takes, or all of our next hot takes, this is Michael Popak, Karen Friedman Igniffalo. Shout out to the Midas Mighty and the Legal AFers.